Greetings, everyone, and welcome to the Cool Hand Grace Podcast. Another week and another biblical passage awaits us to explore. Our goal is to gain insight and application from God's Word that can encourage us in our day-to-day lives. I'm Pastor Kurt Witzig, and on behalf of the College Ministry at Duluth Bible Church, welcome. Miracles. Definitely exciting, definitely unexpected, seemingly impossible, certainly impressive. Something happens that defies known physical boundaries, an instant change in circumstances, something you will never forget if you happen to be exposed to one. Miracles have a way to really get our attention. So now I'd like to have you stop and think a little bit about what could be maybe your biggest desire. You know, maybe it's a certain person you'd love to be uh, have as your mate. Maybe it's some sort of financial relief or debt-free or building a nest egg or some sort of physical health or a cure for something or you're struggling with. Maybe it's an appearance modification, you know, a weight loss or a new nose or whatever. Maybe it's to have children or if you have children, to be an amazing parent. Or maybe it's victory over certain sins that bog you down, patterns, maybe addictions. Or even maybe success in your field. You know, you stand out. You're a star with your musical instrument or an athletic event or uh, ability or, or your uh, uh, working skills. You know, we can be motivated by this thing and wish for it and hope for it and look forward to it. And, and it dominates. It can dominate our thinking as we get excited about it and even motivated by it. And then, and then you hear there's opportunity. There's this news of a miracle worker who's nearby, and they will accomplish a miracle for you. And yes, you can't wait. Hopes arise. You think through, I can't wait for that. And there's like anticipation. We could cue up the Carly Simon song here. Well, our passage of study this week is actually three passages that are parallel accounts of the same incident, and the accounts are about a miracle. And they are in Matthew, found in Matthew 9 and Mark 2 and Luke 5. And the three gospel writers each give an account that are really similar, yet they do manage each to give a little bit of a different angle to help our understanding. And so we're going to look, uh, start in Mark, and we're going to end up looking through Matthew in our passages. So the scene is Jesus. He's arriving in Capernaum, having a uh, across the Sea of Galilee, and he's in a house. Uh, Some even believe it might have been Peter's house. And he's teaching, and a large crowd is gathering. So we'll walk through the account beginning in Mark chapter 2. We'll read a few verses here, verses 1 through 4. And again, he entered Capernaum after some days, and it was heard that he was in the house. Immediately, many gathered together, so that there was no longer room to receive them, not even near the door. And he preached the word to them. 
And they came to him bringing a paralytic who was carried by four men. And when they, when they could not come near him because of the crowd, they uncovered the roof where he was. That's politely saying it. Actually, uh, they broke through the roof where he was. So when they had broken through, the text goes on, they let down the bed on which the paralytic was lying. Now, these are some really good friends, wouldn't you say? We don't know if they're friends or if they're siblings or whatnot. It just says four. He's carried by four. But obviously, they're friends of some sort. Uh, and this is not a shallow relationship. These gentlemen have pure determination. They're going to actually bust through a roof. Can you imagine if you're at church on a Sunday morning, all of a sudden someone busting through the roof? Uh, I think there'd be some protest. There would be some, what are you doing? And we don't read, in fact, this is impossibly, if it is in Peter's house, you would certainly think you'd see a protesting Peter, you know, uh, uh, showing his strength and saying, hey, whatever, or a mother-in-law giving protest. But why are they doing this? Well, the text is going to say, Uh, As we look at Mark chapter 5 and verse 5 now, then when Jesus saw their faith. So we see in Mark, Matthew, all of them, that Jesus is aware of their faith. So why are they doing this? This has something to do with their faith. Now, the Greek word when it says he saw their faith is, is idon, and it means to perceive, to take note and awareness of something. And it appears to be causal here. In other words, seeing their faith, Jesus then is going to do what he does. He's going to tell this man to take up his bed and to walk. Their faith, it says in our text, plural, their faith, a plural pronoun. It must be referring then to the four friends and the paralytic. And when we think of faith, faith in what? Faith is really the value of faith is in the object. I am persuaded, so I will trust. What is the object that has persuaded me and that I am now about to trust in? So the object of their faith, well, it doesn't say, but we know this. We know that these people are Jews. Jesus is in uh, a Jewish community. He's a Jew himself. We're in the nation of Israel. These are people who believe they are chosen of the one true God. They have the scriptures, the Old Testament, the prophets, etc., and they have uh, the law. Now, Jesus has been teaching, he's been performing miracles, and these miracles are authenticating his message. So these four, these five, would have been convinced about who he is. Who is he? He's their Messiah. This is part of their Jewish belief system. They have a faith in a coming Messiah promised to them in the scriptures, and he will be the king and will set up a kingdom forever. So I just think if you have two, you know, hold up two fingers. One finger would be uh, part of your faith would be as a Jew, you're, you have faith in God, you have faith in the scriptures and the holy law and the temple and the sacrifices and the priests and you have the Passover and these different holidays and rituals and things. And all of these things are even a picture of an ultimate truth of the coming Lamb of God and the Messiah. And so you have faith. One finger represents the temple, the sacrifices, the law, and that whole religious system. Now, the other finger would also represent to a Jew in his mind a faith in a future coming Messiah and the promise of a king and a kingdom. Now, would Jesus praise their faith if they only had one finger of the two, if they only believed in the law and the temple and the sacrifices, but did not think through or think that Jesus was the Messiah or the king or the kingdom? 
No, we can deduce here that these men, these people had both in play. Their faith was in Jesus and understanding him to be the fulfillment, the Messiah, and that he's able and he can heal their friend and he's been doing this and they have faith in the person of Christ. So we get back to our text and now we're in, uh, and, and Jesus saw their faith we see in uh, Mark chapter 9, he says, when Jesus, verse 2, when Jesus saw their faith, he said to the paralytic, Son, be of good cheer. Your sins are forgiven you. So he said to the paralytic, now the specific object of his attention, there's a whole crowd, there's four that dropped him in. Never mind, the whole focus is now on Jesus and the paralytic, and he says, Son. This is a term of endearment, of a tenderness. And this is reflecting then the relational side of Jesus. Son, be of good cheer. Now, he uses the same phrase, be of good cheer, later in Matthew chapter 9. Uh, just a few verses later, in verse 20, he was walking, and suddenly a woman who had a flow of blood for 12 years. Just imagine that. And she came from behind, also clearly in desperation, and touched the hem of his garment, for she said to herself, if only I may touch his garment, I shall be made well. And Jesus turned around, and when he saw her, he said, Be of good cheer, daughter. Your faith has made you well. And the woman was made well from that very hour. Be of good cheer. This is something that Jesus says in both cases. He then references their faith, and one he calls a son and the other a daughter. And he says back in Matthew 9, 22, Son, be of good cheer. Your sins are forgiven you. The Greek word there is aphemi. It's a verb. It's in the perfect tense, which means with results continuing onward. And it's a release from legal or moral obligation. It's a cancellation. Wow. That was a surprise. Maybe even possibly disappointing. I mean, bring in our opening illustration, that big thing you're anticipating, that big thing you're hoping for, that big thing you're thinking about, and the miracle, the possibility, your faith is not a possibility. You're convinced he can deliver it and bring it. And he says, your sins are forgiven you. And you go, wait, what? Forgiven? It's almost like a buzzkill. I mean, really, what was this paralytic hoping for? You are healed. Now, expectations. We can have that anticipation, the hope, that something we really desire, something we're looking for or wanting. It's not wrong. Those things may not even hopefully be sinful at all that you're desiring. But boy, we need to be careful, don't we, how they line up with spiritual reality and God's truth. It's okay to want things, pray for things, but it's not okay to lose the Lord in that desire. We can uh, go into a state of mind where we just miss the important things. You are forgiven. Oh, yeah, whatever. What about my brownie? I'm looking for that brownie, that big desire. Life will be out of whack when this happens to you and I. It's easy to get distracted. So what do we do about it? What's the remedy? Well, the only thing is really just to expose yourself to truth and real realities. Gain the perspective of the Word of God. Listen and consider to things that God is saying, truths that you know that are there. Reflect on them. Remind yourself of them. Remember the grace of God. Think upon and appreciate again. And really just believe anew and respond to the Lord for all that you know is true of Him. To know that someone loves you, even now, right now, today, someone knows you, 
all of it, the good parts, the bad parts, and yet still declares love for you. Someone has sacrificed for you and then pursued you and has saved you should you turn and believe. And someone cares, is aware, and would love to give you wisdom. Someone is patient. He's willing to come alongside and to teach and correct us. Someone is full of grace and truth, full of it, full of mercies and wisdom. Someone is always present and aware, is there for you and aware of you and stands in your void. What you may lack, what you're perplexed about, someone is able to even give you fulfillment, perhaps grant new desires, even give what he calls the abundant life. And so in our hearts and our thinking, friends, go there and consider that and take that in and believe afresh, respond. Forgiveness? Yeah, full forgiveness. It's a big deal. Now, we don't know of any disappointment in the paralytic or his friends. The text says nothing about that. So I'm merely extrapolating for the sake of making an application. But we can leave what we may or may not, what they may or may not have been thinking, and we can turn to the Pharisees in our story because we will see uh, from the text what they are thinking. And they are thinking in Matthew 9, uh, in verses 3 and 4, we read, and at when he said, be of good cheer, your sins are forgiven you at once. Some of the scribes said within themselves, this man blasphemes. And Jesus, who knew their thoughts, said, why do you think evil in your hearts? This man blasphemes. They're thinking this inwardly, and Jesus calls them out on it publicly or externally. Now, in Mark chapter 2, as well as in Luke, we get one more detail there. This man blasphemes, and they then add, who can forgive but God alone? Well, that's a good question. What is the answer? And Jesus says, this man blasphemes that these are evil thoughts because Jesus is God. He's not blaspheming. The Jewish religious leaders here do not recognize him, their own Messiah, and instead are falsely misinformation and accusing him of blasphemy, the very opposite of what's really going on. Now, to help you illustrate what's help illustrate what what is going on here, let's just say that you have you know a friend or a mate, a sibling, someone close to you that that maybe lied to you, vicious lie, maybe mistreated you, maybe it's you know did something really wrong and it's devastating to you, and you feel crushed and you've been hurt, and it's really just hard to get over it and And I come along and I say to your offender, "Hey, I forgive you." Well, what is the problem here? Who am I to forgive the sins that that person did to you? You see, the point is, all sin is first and foremost against God. All sin is he's the creator of every human being and has given us his standards and he has holy and righteousness abounding. And so all sin is before him first and foremost. That's why in Romans 3 verse 19, we read that when we know that whatever the law says, it says to those who are under the law that every mouth may be stopped and all the world may become guilty before God. A few verses later, Romans 3.23, we have all sinned and fall short of the glory of God. We're all guilty. We all have all sorts of wrongness and thoughts and selfishness and meanness and lust and whatever that abounds in us. And therefore, Romans 6.23, a chapter later, even a few chapters later, gives us a consequence. The wages of sin is death. Death meaning separation. That which is holy separates from that which is not holy. Clean from the unclean. 
The wages of sin is death. That's a principle of consequences for sin. Much like the barrier perhaps you now have in your heart as you've been wronged or someone has really done something really hard hard for you to get over, etc., there's probably a barrier in that relationship between you and that person. It's a natural consequence. And so we now need to see God's point of view, though. He's saying, you know, that sin that what someone did to you, that was done to me first and foremost. All sin first lines up and is against me. And so who can forgive sins? Who can say your sins are forgiven you? Well, God can. And he can forgive any sin. In fact, all sin. And he's willing to. So we've had, if we've believed in Christ and have understood how God has expressed this forgiveness, we know we even have forgiveness if we've believed in him. But he has been, he is totally willing to forgive that unworthy person in your life for what they did to you. And the basis for that forgiveness is in his love, as his love was demonstrated at Calvary, and in his son and his death on our behalf. The sin against you was first against God, and he's willing to forgive that to that person. So what about you? Are you willing to forgive that person? But even the bigger question that comes actually first are you willing to receive forgiveness freely from God? We'll have more on that in a minute. But we see then in our text, Jesus was knowing their thoughts, and it's the Greek word idon. It's the same one earlier. Just how he knew the, the friends of the men had their faith, he knows the thoughts of the Pharisees. Same perception. And he says, why do you think evil in your hearts? As we understood what they were thinking was evil, because it wasn't truth. It was wrong. And truth matters. Friends, Christians of all people, we should be champions of truth. We are to rely on truth. Our scripture is inerrant. It is truth. And we evangelize and tell others the good news with the truth of the gospel, the truth found in the word of God. There is truth. We should harbor truth and delight in truth and be people of the truth. And whenever there's conflict, though, we get two sides and there's this story and that story. But in this case, in many cases, we have one side that's willing to deceive or or not tell truth, even outright lie. You know, it's like our society today. We see uh, so many things going on. Today, so many lies are put out, conspiracies, wild speculations, bluntly stated untruths, where there's no evidence whatsoever. And it's just put out there. It's just like throw it out there and throw it out there. Misinformation over and over, fast and furious, outrageous claims, one after another. And it, all of many of it provokes fear and anxieties, and it's overwhelming and causing all sorts of dilemmas. And it's dizzying, and there's confusion. And we have to ask first and foremost, who is not the author of confusion? In 1 Corinthians, we know God is not the author of confusion in verse chapter 14. Secondly, we can look and see that uh, some of the stuff that's going out and being said and so forth, we know it's some of it's just lies. Well, who's the father of all lies? And then when we stop and go, oh, this is so much, I don't even know what to believe. I don't know who to believe anymore. Many of us have been exasperated to that end. Well, what was the serpent's strategy back in the Garden of Eden? Has God really said this? Is God really that? I don't know. I don't know who to believe anymore, Eve could have said, after all of this deception. So in Matthew 9, we have controversy. We have conflict. The Pharisees are going to uh, begin like a career of uh, besmirching Jesus Christ, calling him fake Messiah. And they'll say blasphemous things, even undercutting and saying the opposite of what is true. And the people, well, they're confused. How are they supposed to know? Who are they supposed to believe? 
And so you see the stage is set perfectly for a miracle. That's what miracles are doing. When God brings forth miracles, he is confirming the message of the person speaking, and he's validating the identity of the messenger. That's what miracles are done. They're done there to, or perform, they're given rather, to help confirm and validate the message and the messenger. Praise God for miracles. And so the readers are going to benefit from this scene. And Jesus, who then tells this man to take up his bed and walk, but then the Pharisees are thinking blasphemy, he's blasphemous. Jesus says, why do you think evil in your hearts? And then chapter 9, he goes on in our story in verse 5. He says, which is easier to say? Your sins are forgiven you, or to say arise and walk? Which is easier to say? Well, I think the Pharisees would have probably thought it's easier to say your sins are forgiven you. Because if you say arise and walk and he doesn't, then you are clearly, you're put on the spot. So, yeah, let's see you do that. But I think the reverse is actually what is true. You see, you can see the healing of the paralytic with your eyes. That's verifiable. So that helps a lot. But so Jesus is explaining the theology of what you may not be seeing. He says, what is easier to say, your sins are forgiven you, or arise and walk? Well, that's a really good question, and one to cause us to stop and think. What is needed or required to say, arise and walk? Well, the person needs to have the ability to perform the miracle and must be willing to do so. So the ability to perform the miracle and be willing to do so. If you have the ability, then that's really an easy thing to do. What is needed, though, to say your sins are forgiven you? Well, again, you must be in the position of having that option to forgive sins. And who can forgive sins but God alone? In order to just say a blanket statement like that, you must be God. And you must be willing to forgive sins. I mean, a holy, just God who is outraged by the sin has to actually get beyond that and say, I want to forgive. And then he must provide the basis then to fulfill that desire to forgive sins. And this is the theology. You see, someone has harmed you, like I said, someone has sinned against you, a big deal, even criminal maybe. Let's say it goes to court. It's a criminal thing. The court hears it, sees it all, recognizes it, and says, yep, that person's a smoking gun. They are guilty. They're dead in the water. That, that schmuck did that to you. Guilty. Boom. Deserving of rightful penalty. But then after that's determined, the judge says, but you know what? You seem like a nice person. I'm going to let you go. You're free to leave. What would you think? You would say, ah, no justice. And you'd be outraged. That is wrong. So how can God just arbitrarily forgive sins and say, hey, you did all this. Yes, you're guilty, but hey, forget it. Just walk away. God can't do that. That's not justice. So something has to happen for God and Christ to be able to grant forgiveness of sins. And that means the barrier of justice has to be satisfied and justice has to be carried out and fulfilled. The penalty of sin, as we said, was death. The guilty then are separated. And God loves us in spite of ourselves. And he specifically loves you, warts and all, even though you have plenty of sins. And he's going to carry out his justice and he's going to fulfill his righteous demands and he's going to put forth his legitimate wrath against your sin and mine. And he does it fully, completely, for every single sin at the cross of Jesus Christ. That's where Jesus the innocent died willingly for you and I, the guilty. That's where Jesus successfully paid in full the penalty of our sins, and he cried out victoriously in John 19.30, It is finished. They are all paid for. 
and then he died. So which is easier to say? Another verse that helps our thinking here is found in Isaiah 53, a a prophecy actually about Jesus hundreds of years before he was born. And it says that in verse 10, it pleased the Lord to bruise him. The word really is the idea, crush him. It pleased the Lord to crush him and put Jesus to grief. What? This is like, what is this, like some sort of cosmic child abuse? Well, why is that true? Because the text goes on and says, when you make his soul an offering for sin. And his soul there is the idea of his, all of his being, his life. You made him, Jesus, your son, an offering for sin. And he had no sin, so it wasn't for his own. And God says he shall see his seed and prolong his days. Jesus will resurrect. And the pleasure of the Lord will prosper in his hand. And now it's pleasures. And he shall see the labor of his soul. God will see the labor of Jesus' soul his life, and God will be satisfied. The gospel is that the death of Christ satisfies the just holy demands of God. And therefore, by anyone's knowledge of my righteous servant, God says, that'll justify many. He will bear their iniquities. Substitute. Therefore, verse 12, I will divide him a portion with the great, and he shall divide the spoil with the strong, because he, Jesus, poured out his soul unto death did that for you, and he did that for me. And he bore the sin of many and made intercession for the transgressors. What a marvelous Savior that God would send his own son and crush him on the cross, but then raise him up, and through that willing sacrifice of Christ, the innocent substitute, God's justice is fully met. In order for this to happen, we see it also in Colossians chapter 2, verse 13 through 15, where we read, You having forgiven you all trespasses. There it is. You have been forgiven all, every trespass, sin. How? Having wiped out the handwriting of requirements that was against us. You broke this law, you broke this law, you broke this law. You are guilty here and here and here. There is an ordinances set forth against us. We have a bad record. And therefore it was contrary to us. And Colossians goes on and says, and he has taken it out of the way, having nailed it to the cross. It was all put on Christ. And he takes it out of the way. He absorbs it. And through that, he has disarmed principalities and powers and made a spectacle, public spectacle of them in triumph. Wow. To the cross. So how do I get in on that? Our famous favorite verse, John three sixteen. For God so loved the world, he gave his only begotten Son, that whosoever believes in him will not perish but have eternal life. You believe on him. And that verse, John 3.16, was given to Nicodemus, who was really inquiring about how to be born again. We're born, we have new life, new identity, we have our record cleansed, and we get a new heart through faith in Christ. Because we have two problems against us, a bad record and a bad heart. And we get new life through Christ. That's why 2 Corinthians 5.21 goes on to say that he, God, made Jesus, who knew no sin, to be sin for us. Why? The verse continues, that we might become the righteousness of God in him. 
Yes, God declares us righteous when we put our faith and our confidence in Christ. Why would God ever let you into heaven? Why would you ever be qualified to enter his holy home? It's because I believe in Christ, and I put my faith in what he did for me and his cleansing, and now I have righteousness as a gift. What's the greatest miracle that's about to happen in that house? It's the forgiveness of sins that he just gave that most people didn't understand or or ponder. And this is not to be responded to with like, wait, what? I was hoping for my brownie. This is awesome (laughs) to know that it's finished and you're good to go, guaranteed eternal life. For God to grant forgiveness, he is the one who has sinned against and he is the one who needs to be willing and wanting to forgive. And he's provided the basis for that forgiveness to flow freely and at great cost and at great sacrifice. So which is easier? Your sins are forgiven to say that? In order to say that, he's going to have to go to the cross. He's going to have to suffer the sins of the world and be separated from God for three hours on the cross, die, physically uh, um, go to the burial, and then be raised again. So Jesus goes on, though, and he says, which is easier to say? The theology, hopefully, is now being caught. But that you may know that the Son of Man has power on earth to forgive sins. So we see why is he giving this miracle, so that the people there can know who he is. He has power, and he can forgive sins. In other words, that you may know that I am God. That's the theology. Now the miracle. Arise, he says to the man take up your bed and go to your house. And he arose and departed to his house, right then and there, in front of everyone. The multitude sought, they marveled, and they glorified God. Matthew says as well that they marveled and glorified God and said, who has given such power to men? Mark says they were amazed. We have never seen anything like this. They give credit to God. They're impressed with God. This is the way it should work. A miracle occurs. They don't put their faith in the healer and the person, the human, the horizontal. Their faith goes vertical. God did this. Praise be to God. That's the second most incredible miracle that day in the house. The first had already just happened, forgiveness of sin. So in closing, we see that he did. He went home. He got up. He walked out. We see the crowd marveled. Three things were said to the paralytic, rise, take up your bed, and go home. Now, if you're listening and you're not saved or you're not sure you know for sure where you're going to spend eternity or where you stand with God, are your sins fully forgiven? You're not sure. Just know it's about faith. The object of your faith, not yourself, Jesus Christ, not your church, but him, the innocent who died for the guilty and took your place. The reason he did so, God loves you unconditionally, unbelievably. And he poured out his love and he gave you this gracious gift of forgiveness and life. Response to this love then is for you and I to take it. And we receive it by faith, whosoever believes in him. Like John 6, 47, Jesus said then, Most assuredly I say to you, he who believes in me has everlasting life. And so do you have it? Right here and now, do you have that life? It's there, it's paid for, provided, and it's free. Now, to those of us who are saved, he says, arise, take up your bed, go to your house. You are forgiven and healed. You get it all in Christ. And so where to go? Take with you your forgiveness, first of all. Carry it in your heart, your head. Realize it, know it, and best of all, count on it. 
Count on your forgiveness. It's there. Don't try to earn it. Don't try to merit it. You cannot. It's grace. It's undeserved. It's all based on Christ's merit. Now relish it. Enjoy it. Let it put a bounce in your step. Like he said, be of good cheer. Think, the paralytic, he wanted to walk, and he got that, and he got forgiveness. He got forgiveness, and he got to walk. What he really needed was what he got. And it's the same with you and I. We're forgiven and healed. We have new life and a new outlook and a new walk. How many sins was he forgiven? All of them. How many times? All the time. We sing about amazing grace. We sing grace greater than our sin. And remember also, forgiven people are forgiving people. It has a direct impact on you and others when you know you're forgiven. It hopefully leads us to become more and more big-hearted people. There's no room for us to say to that person who's offended us, man, you got to earn my forgiveness. you got to crawl on your hands and beg before I forgive you. No, no, no. Arise to a better life, even abundant life that Christ can give. Take your forgiveness with you and relish in that. And then he says, take up your bed, your mat. And what is that? Why? Well, so I think the idea is to take your story with you. Remember, use this like a prop. This is where you came from. This is what you were. But now look at you. You're totally different. You're totally new. You have good news to share. This guy, maybe he took it home and he framed his mat and put it on his wall for all to see. People would come. They'd ask him, what's that up there? And I'll tell you my story. Take with you. But if you're taking with you your mat, your new life, your, it means you're also like the crowd marveling and amazed be renewed in your in glorifying God and his grace. You, are, you have been forgiven and healed with new life and walk. Take up your bed and be willing to tell that story. Look where I came from. Look at my God. Look what he did. And finally, thirdly, go to your house. Go to your home and live your life, everyday life now. To the believer, just finish on this. Jesus is your home. John fifteen four he says, Abide in me and I in you. The word abide can carry the idea of dwell. John fifteen nine he goes on to say, Abide or dwell in my love. Colossians three reminds us that Christ is our life. It's his life in us. He lives his life through us now. And we dwell with him and we abide with him. Hopefully and we'll abide with him forever and hopefully in the days ahead. Something to put a bounce in our step, isn't it? This is truth to lay hold of. May we, as we finish this podcast, may you go about your day taking that forgiveness with you and fresh memory and cherishing it. You know it's yours. Taking your mat, the story, the story of grace and of salvation and glorifying God, and then abide and enjoy your relationship with Christ. Shall we pray? Lord, we do thank you for this amazing forgiveness, full and free at what cost, but how valuable it is to us. And may we appreciate it and see that it's worth much more than any brownie or blessing. Father, we thank you as well for even being healed, forgiven and healed, meaning the idea of newness of life and a new identity, new perspective, and even victory available in Christ. And grace gives us all this. Thank you, Father, that you're the God of miracles. And may we all marvel and give glory to you now, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, thanks for listening again, and like us on your podcast app if you can. That, that's really helpful. And until next time, remember, where the Spirit of God is, there is hope. <laughs>